thank you for coming this afternoon. I'm Neville Strominger. I work here in Johannesburg at APSA, and Nikki and I have volunteered for Paper D and E. Paper D is in improving tax incentives for retirement fund savings, and Paper D is incentivizing non-retirement fund savings. So we'll take you through the tax aspects today. And then about two weeks ago, Joanna and Michael spoke about enabling a better income in retirement and preservation, portability, and governance for retirement funds. Can I just see who was here at the previous one? All right, we had a similar, many of the Capetonians also came to both, so I hope you find benefit out of it today. I'm going to take you through my presentation. It's about 30 slides, and I'm just going to take you through the highlights as I read the paper, and then I want to appeal to you to please apply your minds and send both Nikki and myself comments by the 23rd of November. That's next week, Friday, I think. So if something crops up, we're going to listen to you today, and we're going to discuss things with you today, but we're not going to write it down feverishly. So we, we really ask you, if you've got something sensible to say, want to say, would like an alternative opinion, anything's welcome, please just pop us a mail, and we'll put it together in the end. All right. Okay, so let's get started. I'm going through improving tax incentives for retirement fund savings. Uh, generally, I found the paper to be well-written. I... I it's got some controversial aspects to it, um, but a lot of it uh, has been coming now since 2011, since the budget proposals in 2011. So, so quite a bit of it, the general feeling I got from people who did read the paper is they thought it was well written and not as controversial as, as other papers are. So where, where did it start this year? It started in March this year with strengthening retirement fund savings paper that National Treasury brought out to promote household savings and reform for the retirement fund industry. And my paper really looks at harmonizing provident funds, retirement annuities, and pension funds, and having a, a uniform approach or a simplified approach, how to take care of all retirement funds, both um, pension, provident, and, and RAs. And that's the idea of this paper. Can they, can they harmonize it? Can they have a simple, clear solution? And they, 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 they attempt to do that. I think before we look at what they propose, then just let's just see where we currently are. So you've got obviously the employers and the employees. On the employer's side, they can claim 10 to 20% of approved remuneration as a business expense against tax. So they can just write it off as a business expense. And the employee on three different funds, on the provident fund, they can't claim a deduction. On the pension fund, they can claim up to 7.5% of retirement fund employment. And on the RAs, they can claim up to 15% on non-retirement funding employment. And for those who work in this day-to-day, -day, this is fairly straightforward. This is the current dispensation, but it is complicated, um, and there's a, this is the idea of the paper to simplify it. So there's some comments that just intuitively come, come up. Um, the tax regime is deemed or seen as too complex. You've got to look at where the person was and, and did they move from provident to pension. And the administration is quite, quite laborious. And then um, tax exemption, there, there's, there's a feeling that high-income employees and tax-exempt employers can... Um, can mis misuse the situation, can, ab can abuse the current tax regime. All right, this is probably the easiest part of the paper, but where everything comes together is in the 2012 budget proposals. There were budget proposals in 2011, but they've refined it with comments that, they, that, that National Treasury received, and they've refined it and brought it out in 2012. You may feel that this is not refined enough. I thought it was quite good, but that's, that's why we're having a discussion today. So the main, the main idea is that your, your contributions that the employer makes on, on the behalf of the employees will be treated as a fringe benefit in the hands of the employees. That's the main, the, the main crux of it. So it's going to show up on your RP 5 and 
However, once it's deemed as a fringe benefit, you will be able to allow have the, a, a, a deduction from it. And the deduction works this way. If you were below age 45, then up to 22.5% of, your, of, of your, your remuneration, let's call it, uh, can be claimed as a tax, uh, tax deductibility, but no more than 250,000. And if you're over age 45, you can claim up to 27.5%, but no more than 300,000. There is a minimum monetary deduction of 20,000, which is just to allow low-income earners to contribute more than the cap. Non-deductible contributions are in excess of the caps. You, if you just carry it forward until retirement, you won't pay income tax on it. So, um, but then you can take it as a lump sum or as an annuity at retirement. So then you won't pay income tax on that amount. There is a rollover dispensation. I'm not, uh, I do ask for clarity in, in the draft paper that I put together from comments I received. Just how will this rollover dispensation work? But they have a rollover, a rollover dispensation for, for um, people who have fluctuating incomes and to take care of them. They try to address, and this is not easy, you'll, um, they try to address the complexities of DB schemes and hybrid schemes. So we'll discuss that a bit later. And then they have a rebuttal about comp uh, complaints or arguments that they had that they were on the wrong track. So the one was, is it 22.5% adequate? People may still feel today it's not adequate, but they argue that it is ad adequate, and now they've made provision for, for members over age, for, for employees over age 45. So they've, they've made some progress there. They feel that that's enough. They also have uh, on the cap, they think the caps are, are high enough. There's not many people who contribute above the caps, and I'll show you some stats that, that they've got to back that up. And then the employer's role, there was thought that there would be a, a, a diminishing or, a, or no role whatsoever for the employer. But I think that's overboard, and they think the same. And they, they argue that the risk benefits, the tax treatment for risk benefits hasn't changed, so that stayed the same. And the purpose that many employers start a retirement fund is to attract and retain key staff, which sounds pretty, that's what you sort of learn when you write the exams. Don't know how true that is, but they, they, they believe it's, it's still an important motivation. All right, issue still under discussion, and I probably will get comments from, from you guys and ladies today. Please do send them to us. Uh, about the treatment of DB schemes and hybrid schemes, and that's, that needs analysis, and they certainly invite comment on that, so I think they'll really appreciate your comments. And then the exact definition of income, which to base the thresholds on, is under discussion. They've got a, quite a, a neat solution, and I'll show that to you, but they invite comment on that as well. Just the overall feeling, if you look at a tax regime, there's a couple of things that, they, that National Treasury puts out. Just a couple of things that come to mind. It needs to encourage South Africans to save. It needs to be easy to understand. It needs to be easy to administer, not open to abuse, equitable, and the, get the desired effect that the fiscus wants. So those are some of the, the, the desires of an effective tax regime. They look at the situation of it being too compli complicated. Certainly from an administration viewpoint, it's, it's too complicated. That's their viewpoint. They want to simplify it, and by treating... The, the employer's contribution is a fringe benefit in the hands of the employee, and then having a deduction, all of this, all of this data will go through your IRP5. All of these deductions will go through your IRP5. So they'll have one source in which to look at are they being effective with the tax incentives that they're putting in place. Then they have two concerns about the regime being open to abuse. You have tax-exempt employers, and they can contribute much more than is necessary to, towards the employers, and, that, and, and the, there's an advantage for them to do that. And there's high-income employees, very high-income employees, that can contribute much more than they need to 
and, that's, and there's a feeling that, that they would want to curb that by having these caps. All right, they make an argument um, by showing, I just want to show you the net replacement ratios for someone who will retire at age 65, and if you take the 22.5% and you take 5% towards risk, benefits, and expenses, and you invest 17.5% towards retirement, then what is the, the likely replacement ratios that you're going to get at different ages on the, in the rows and the columns is the net, uh, net investment yield over the salary growth, so the net rate of return. And maybe we can just focus on the 35-year-olds. They go from 43% when there's a 0% net effective rate of return, uh, real rate really, to 85% with a 4% real rate. And they make the argument that that's, that's not bad. They, 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 um, and this is when you actually pay out the, when people die, you pay out the, the, the risk benefits to them. So they, they have an analysis of this and they, they, they're looking at about 60% to be not unreasonable and at 2% real you do get 60%. So they make the case that, that that's not bad. Okay, so a couple of things just to reiterate, non-deductible contributions, you won't pay income tax if you keep it until uh, retirement and then you can take it as a lump sum or as annuity income. And there is a rollover dispensation for people with fluctuating incomes. All right, the role of the employer, um, I think they, they, they really uh, promote the role of the employer. I think they, they see the employer as vital in this equation between government, employees and employer. They don't diminish that role, they, they promote that role and there's definite advantages when an employer sets up a retirement fund. There's better, you could get your risk benefits, could be cheaper, could be simpler, your administration could be simpler, could be cheaper, your investment management again could be simpler, could be cheaper. Uh, the automated savings helps, and the, the role of the employer is seen as crucial. So the, that I picked up from, from what they were saying. All right, if you look at the risk benefits, um, what you find is th that um, the risk benefits, the current advantages that you have for risk benefits don't disappear in the new system where they treat it as a fringe benefit, but you're allowed a deduction. So effectively, you're in the same position as you currently are. But I do do an analysis of, of income if the... If the, risk benefit, if, the, if the risk benefit is very high and you earn below 331000 then it's actually to your advantage that the risk benefit doesn't go through the retirement fund but is outside the fund. But if your income is above 331000 then you're actually always better off to do your risk benefits through the fund. So it's just an analysis that they show. All right, just very straightforward mathematics. If you take the 250000 and you divide it by the 0.225, then, and you take the 20,000 and you divide it by the 0.225, you have a range from about 89,000 to 1.1 million is captured by the 22.5% for, for employees less than age 45. And if you look at 300,000 divided by 0.275, it's just under 1.1 million. So you're going again from 89,000 to 1.1 million. I just want to show this for the range that, um, that there is. The other one is this, this percentage is actually on the total cost to company. So just to bear that in mind, it's not on the pensionable salary as it's currently often done, it's on the total cost to company, these percentages will apply. All right, they, they want to show from an analysis of SARS data, how many people, if, if, if there are people, how many peop what is the amount that people claim um, as, as, as a, how much do they invest in retirement funds? So what deduction can they claim? And they do an analysis for everybody, that's all. 29, and then they do an analysis for people above a million. So 1 million to 2 million, 2 million to 5 million, 5 million plus, 1 million plus. And you'll see under the, under the heading average amount 
conditional on claiming a deduction. The most that people claim on average, this is just averages, so it's a bit misleading. Uh, there's obviously people who claim more than the average. Um, about f over 5 million, the highest deduction is 201,700. 201,700. Yeah, so it's below the 250,000, and they make the point that very few people are then affected by the caps. That may not be true from your experience or how you see it, so you're welcome to differ, but this is the argument they make. Right, on the, on the provident funds, um, it's clear that they, uh, the point I want to make here is provident funds are really going to become like pension funds, and they're going to be treated and have the same tax advantages, and someone might cynically say the same tax disadvantages, but let's call it the advantages, the same tax treatment as pension funds. So um, this still has to go through to NEDLAC, and there will be big discussions about this. Um, but just to want to, the, the Provident Fund will have the same tax treatments, and they want to protect against longevity and investment risk. So they want people to annuitize. And I think Michael spoke about that in his, in, his, in his paper. All right, this is very interesting. I thought they did an analysis on defined benefit schemes, and they wanted to see how many there are in the country and what, what, what can they do about defined benefit schemes. And you'll see they, they split it up by DBs, DCs, and hybrids. And DBs as a percentage of the, all the funds is only 0.4%, hybrids is 7.6%, and DCs in total are 92%. So 8% are DB or hybrids. So at least it contains the type of solution that you're after. You're not after 92% of the solution, you're looking for a solution for 8% of people. And then they have two approaches. One they call an ad hoc rules-based approach, and the other one is a benefits-based approach. Now the ad hoc rule-based approach they, create, they want to create a conditional exemption from the fringe benefit treatment for the employer contribution to certain DB schemes on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, but they want there to be genuine, it needs to be a genuine reason why you can ap apply for this exemption. So it could be because you've got a closed fund or you've got to meet a deficit, but it's got to be genuinely unanticipated. So it can't be because the, the actuary, they don't think we go this way, but use unrealistic assumptions or, 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 or the like. Then they have a value of benefits approach. Instead of looking at what contributions the employer pays on behalf of the employee, look at what benefits actuarially accrue uh, to, to the member, and then take that, deem that to be the employer's portion, subtract out from that the employee's contribution, so you don't double count. Now I'll have an example that I'll show you now. Um, they just have the different factors uh, for the pension accrual factor. This is just an illustration. They've got a factor of eight. And this is to allow for salary increases until retirement. Allow, and then one will in practice have to allow between career averaging and final averaging and different pension increases between funds. Just to give you an idea, if, if the accrual factor was eight, then I want to take you through this example, which is they show an example of a 60th scheme. And let's say your income was just over one million, one, just over one million, 1.035 million. Then if you look at the current situation, the employee is deemed to contribute at 6%, so that is 62,000. He can contribute up to 7.5% for a pension fund, which is 77,000. So the deduction he can have is 62,000. If you take the 1 million and subtract the 62,000, you, you come to 973,000. That's where it currently is. If you look at the proposed rule, the, the, the employee contribution obviously is still the same, still 62,000, but the notional employer contribution is now going to be the 1 million times the accrual factor, in this case 8 sixtieths, less the employee contributions, which comes to 75,000. So your actual deduction, your actual gross income will now be 1.1 million, 
but your deduction will be 138,000. In this case, the taxable income remains the same. They do show an example of a 30th, and I encourage you just to read the paper. To sh they show you an example of what happens to a 30th scheme, and there actually the taxable income is slightly different. They don't match. All right, I mean, clearly one can see from a distance that there's some difficulties, maybe a lot of difficulties with, uh, the, with the DB approach. What are you going to do with pension, different pension increases between schemes? What are you going to do about non-salary related benefits? And then they throw a big, big thing in the equation. We're going to leave it to the evaluators or we're going to trust the evaluators or rely on the evaluators. So they want the evaluators to help them with these factors and that will be an interaction between the evaluators, SARS and FSB. But they don't want the factors to be unfair. They want there to be fair treatment between the DBs and the DCs. So um, we have so far in the draft said we'd like more clarity on this because uh, what does that actually entail? Then the proposed income basis, um, they state that the income basis you'll use will be the higher of your taxable income or your employment income. And really at the end of the day what they do with employment income, they, they use remuneration. And what they use with taxable income, they use taxable income and they simplify, simplify it a bit. Okay. So on, on the taxable income, they have the formula, you have your gross income, less your exempt income will be your, your, your income, deemed your income. Then you will be allowed your deductions and your allowances. Then you'll add back your taxable portion of capital gains and you'll subtract your assessed losses brought forward and that is the normal formula in the Income Tax Act for taxable income. But what they want to do is, if we go to the next slide, they, they, they talk to themselves really and they say, well, should we allow passive income, royalties, rent, interest, dividends to count as income? And they make the case, yes, we want to do that. We don't want to discriminate on how you get your income, except dividends we don't want to allow because there's a different dispensation for that. But they want to drop taxable portion of capital gains and assessed losses brought forward. They want to drop that from the formula, so to simplify the formula. And then on the employment income, they really just want to use remuneration, um, but without a deduction, without the, any adjustments. So they want to keep it simple. Uh, your, your true remuneration that you might have if you've got a car allowance or other benefits like that will be different um, from just your normal remuneration, but they want to keep it simple. Right, so in, in, in wrapping up, I wanted to just show you the main highlights of the paper as I saw them. And um, what you find in the, in the minds of Treasury, and this is always dangerous if you read it, is a lot of these issues are settled. I don't feel a lot of them are settled. I think there will be small discussions. Um, but they certainly have come some distance since 2011. So a lot of it in their minds are settled. But they do certainly ask for assistance with defined benefit schemes and which income should you use. Is it okay or what could be an improvement on um, tax, you know, the, your income that you use, taxable income, employment income? Uh, which one should you use? The higher of it, is that good? What, what is an alternative? And then that's, that really wraps it up. So I'd like us to have some discussion. I'm not going to do a poll I, like, like, like uh, Johanna and Michael did, but I'd like to hear your, 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 your questions and see what I can help you answer them. And then comments, please send my, my ones to me at this email address. I think they're going to put it up. They should put it up on the actuarial website, the actual society's website, the, the presentation so that you can refer back to it. And time is running out, but there's still enough time until the 23rd of November, and our paper must be submitted, or the comments to Treasury must be submitted or to by, the 20, by the 30th of November. All right, so thank you for, thank you for listening, and let's, let's see what's on your mind. Um, what do you think is good about these proposals? What do you think is, needs more work? I'd love to hear from you. Thanks a lot. Has anyone got something specific to say on the DB schemes? Is there, is there 
a feeling that there's maybe a third alternative or fourth alternative that they haven't thought about? Yes. How do they determine what the contribution rate is in a DB fund? Because as you know, uh, your contribution rate varies per individual. Yes. I, I, no, you're right, Mike. I mean, they, they, they go with average benefits and they, they, I think they talk about that there's, the contribution rate is, is an average. But I mean, they don't look at the specific one for, 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 the, for the member. That's, that's how I read it. I mean, it's obviously going to be impossible for them to do it per member. And uh, <clears throat> it depends on the age span band of that group compared to another age group, another group that's got young members, it's, it's going to be difficult. Yes, no, I agree with you. Right, who, can I, can I ask the difficult question, who's prepared to send me some comments in the next two weeks, or who, who, who might send? I've got one there. Any more, please? Well, we can do better than just one, hey? All right, thanks, Keith. All right, Nikki, I'm going I'm to hand over to you. Thank you very much. So the objective of this particular paper, thanks. Um, is to try and, by means of the tax system and tax incentives, to encourage discretionary savings. And that's something new in our environment. Just a quick overview before we get into the details so that you have a structure around what, what we're going to be talking about. National Treasury did some research in terms of the behavioural aspects around savings rates and there's no doubt that we're all well, well aware that as South Africans we're not a nation of savers. They produced some research that showed as a percentage of GDP that household savings, starting from about 6 or 7% a couple of decades ago, is now below zero, it's negative. The proposal that they make in this paper also has to be balanced with they have to balance the fiscus at the end of the day. So in giving incentives, on the one hand, they have to take away something else. So one of the things that we'll look at is the removal of the current tax-free interest income thresholds. Now, I'm pretty sure that immediately you will think of your parents or some other elderly out there that are effectively living off the interest of their, of their savings. And, and that's a very real impact that I'm not entirely convinced National Treasury have really, really thought through. But nevertheless, to, to give to some, they, they will unfortunately need to take away from others. There is a transition, um, and in taking away, they try and at least give something fairly equivalent back to those that won't continue to enjoy what they are currently enjoying. National Treasury also seems to have done a thorough amount of research in terms of what other countries are doing in terms of using the tax systems to encourage savings. And they seem to have settled on what is happening in the UK. And um, before I do carry on, how many of you are aware in a real practical sense of, of the individual savings account system in, in the UK? Well, I'm glad to hear that because I'd be interested to hear your, 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 your comments. Um, I don't have a personal interaction. and I've done a little bit of research in terms of what exactly these things are. And they certainly do have some compelling aspects. The statistics in the paper show that in the UK, by means of this so-called vehicle, the savings of people in the target um, of population, and here... One of the key objectives in South Africa is to try and increase savings, not, not only in general, but specifically in low to moderate 
and I note they say taxable income households. So in other words, people that in households that are enjoying income and it's at levels where, the, where they are in fact paying tax. So the individual savings account have got two, in the UK have got two interesting components, and you'll see from the slide uh, the one is cash, which is the obvious one, but it also includes equity. And if you have a look at the paper, almost every conceivable cash or near cash investment is allowed in that, and, and similarly with equity. Um, and in the UK, contributions are post-tax, but all returns within the vehicles are free. And there are various caps to ensure that it's not necessarily the wealthy that benefit from this particular dispensation. A, a key aspect of these individual savings accounts is how they are marketed, and we'll, we'll touch on that a bit later. Coming to, to what Treasury has proposed in this paper, they use the terminology, a tax incentivized savings vehicles which to my mind is, is a bit nebulous in terms of, of what exactly this is, and, and a lot of questions have come up so far around what these vehicles are. But one of our, the feedback that we already have in our draft response to Treasury on this discussion paper is that we really are asking them not to introduce any new wrappers. We will have seen in some of the other papers that there, there are ideas of trusts and so on. So... They're bringing in the, the cap contribution concept, which we'll un, we will unpack. And in order to facilitate a change from the current environment where interest income does have certain tax-free thresholds, they have introduced um, a transition period of two years. So looking into the detail, um, they make quite a fuss about the fact that these tax-incentivized vehicles are visible. And I was very interested in, in yesterday's session in Cape Town to come across a, a gentleman who says that wherever you walk, and I think he did say in the high streets, but wherever you walk, and gentleman's nodding there, and please, I'd, I'd love to hear your experience, they are advertised everywhere. So this is the mechanism that Treasury hopes will be able to encourage that inertia that sometimes uh, comes into place. And uh, I, from the first slide, you will have noticed that in their research into the behavioral characteristics of saving, they discovered that short-termism and also inertia are two of the big reasons. And again, I think we can all relate, relate to those. And it is a difficult challenge that they have. And I think they've... They've taken a, a, a step in the right direction. How effective this is going to be is, is going to be interesting, and I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your views. So these tax-incentivized vehicles, um, the proposal is that there will be two broad accounts that will fall under these. Again, it's the interest-bearing accounts, and the three types of accounts that they give as examples are bank deposits, which is the obvious one, they also include the retail savings bonds um, and then also the interest-bearing collective investment schemes. Now, in, in the discussion paper, there, there's no mention of using a, a life insurance policy, savings policies here, but certainly in the UK, as I said, everything is, is used and, and there uh, life insurance savings policies are also classified as accept, acceptable investments. And then the equity accounts are the collective investment schemes 
um, where the equities are listed. The big advantage and the incentive, of course, is that all earnings and capital growth within these accounts will be exempt from tax, as long as the funds are held within these accounts. And the savings accounts must be ring-fenced for tax purposes and need to be registered. So there's a, there's a good dose of formality around the creation of these vehicles. And, and as you can imagine, they're, they're implying that they're going to bring some definition into what these, the, these vehicles look like. So they have brought in the caps, and, and I'm a bit disappointed to use that they use the word abuse, and I know in, in the paper that Neville, uh, Neville has presented, the, I think the word abuse or misuse also comes into play. I think that's a bit strong, but um, the focus is to try and encourage low to moderate taxable income households to save, um, and certainly they acknowledge that the higher income um, uh, of people in the population certainly will participate. The the, and, and, and here are, the, are some of the key things that I'd like you to start considering if you haven't read the paper already. Um, the annual contributions will be capped at 30,000. Is it appropriate to have an annual contribution? And if so, is that the appropriate level? Secondly, the overall, over, overall lifetime limit on contributions is 500,000. If you do a little bit of maths without um, interest, you can see that it will take some time. But um, the, the whole 500,000, and here they do say that these limits will, will, will be increased by inflation. I hope they mean annually. Um, if the 500,000 increases by inflation every year, and in the first year you have 30,000 that is invested, and then in the next year 30,000 plus inflation, and so on, you'll see that it takes even longer, it takes a long, long, long time for this 500,000 to apply. The 500,000 has more relevance in the transitions, which we'll get to in a minute. What they say is there's no overall limitations on withdrawals, but there is a but. So for whatever reason, they did analyze some of the uh, structures that are in place internationally that have got focused objectives for some of these savings, but they decided against that. And so for whatever reason the investor chooses, um, the money can be withdrawn. The big but is that once you've, once you've withdrawn those contributions that you've put in, you may not replace those contributions. The transition arrangements, um, at the moment, uh, you can have a tax-free interest income deduction of 22,800 rand if you're below 65, if your one is above 65, it is 30,000, um, and they're saying that in order to transition to these vehicles, they give a, period of, a transition period of two years, people between 45 and 49 can transition up to a quarter of their lifetime limit within the two-year period, between 50 and 59, half, and 60 and older, then the full 500,000 can be transferred. So just to emphasize that they will be replacing the current tax-free interest income threshold. And as I said, currently this is 22,800 up to 65, and then 33,000 thereafter. Sorry, I said 30,000, it's 33. 
Again, the new tax incentivized vehicles will be more visible and they believe that it will, it's likely to be an effective incentive for the, for the target um, population. And they also say that there's a larger range of op options to include equity, which, which, which is a good thing. Um, however, in, in our generally unsophisticated uh, population, it's debatable how well understood um, the, the risks with inequities are, and, and this has to come with a big dose of education as well. They say that they will take into account pensioners that are dependent on interest income, and you can see by means of the transition arrangements that's, that's how they've done that. And they, they, they finish off the paper by saying that they will endorse these savings accounts, although they won't market the savings account. And I think the hope is that the institutions that offer these savings vehicles will do a good dose of the marketing, as was the case, as is the case in the UK. To me, marketing equals costs, and, and, and it'll be interesting to see if, if, if the providers can come up with creative ways to keep the cost down, but yet reach the target market. Um, the, the government will identify suitable products. So here, here they're now defining what's okay within these vehicles. Um, and they believe that this will assist with the complexity that faces the ha households. Um, they will also define what, what is appropriate information on charges, risks and returns. And the paper does quote, uh, quote the UK experience around this. So they, they believe that uh, they've got a lot to learn from there and, and, and can learn from the mistakes made um, in the UK. And they will define criteria for fair treatment. And that's just how they've said it. What exactly that means is, is also we can discuss. But um, again, in, in if any of you have had a chance to read the, the draft response, um, we've said please talk to us about this part of the activity. So um, there is a, a roving mic, if the gentleman could could just pass it. I'd be very interested to hear your experience about ISAs in, in the UK. Thank you. Thanks, Nikki. Um, I've got well, first-hand experience because I was working there for a few years, so I had ISAs myself. Um, they're extremely well marketed. I think they're very standard um, across providers, so there doesn't seem to be much competition by product differentiation. It seems to be based more on cost and ancillary benefits, which I think makes sense. Um, you don't want a situation where you've got a proliferation of products that ends up in pure confusion and then the need for expensive retail advice. The user to lose it feature, in terms of the annual contributions, I think it's like 5,000 pounds or something like that, seems to work quite well. Um, although the cash ISOs are arguably quite li uh, not very attractive at the moment, given basically zero interest rates. Um, sort of imagine the equity ones are probably attracting more money, although I've got nothing to base that on. Um, I think that's about it, unless you have any specific questions. No, that's exactly that. Yeah, interested to hear you. There's an element, you, you can see the, the positivity coming out of that. It sounds like it's successful. And, and it's interesting that it's, for those of us that haven't been to the UK and worked there, we're not that familiar with it. So I think there's going to be a wave of skepticism, which may or may not be justified. So we'll see. Right, anybody else like to ask questions or, or make comments? I, d I didn't get from the paper what is the rationale for separating 
um, cash investments and equity investments in different vehicles? That's an excellent question. Um, I, I do have an, ans an answer there. Th they were simply copying the UK and the rationale in the UK was that these two things were different parts of legislation that came into one. So in our environment, you, you don't actually need them to be separate. You've got your vehicle, you can put certainly certain defined things into there, but you don't need separate ones. So that, that, that's well spotted. Yeah. So that's one of our pieces of feedback, exactly. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Rob Thompson. Um, for this meeting, you distributed draft letters, our responses. Uh, are those uh, for discussion now? Or? Certainly, yes, yes, yes. I thank you for reading them. Um, because uh, there's some things in it that, that to me, uh, need a little bit of uh, attention, to some, some sort of points that maybe, to me, were a bit obscure. Maybe for Treasury they won't be. Rob, um, Rob can I ask, are, are, will you have a moment to articulate yeah, these for us okay. as well? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, then the other thing... Um, uh, under capped contributions, this presumably arises, I, I'm not quite sure where this arises from, but uh, uh, you say some of our members are of the opinion that the lifetime limit alone is adequate and others that the annual capped contribution is sufficient. It's, it sounds very... Um, the tone is not... Uh, well, yes. Uh, oh. what, is those, what are those opinions based on? Um, okay, I can so understand for simplicity it would be better to have one or the other than, than okay. not both. Okay. But maybe we could tease out a little the pros and cons of those, of those sort of things, where we expressing, uh, where we making recommendations, we could justify them with a, with some, uh, with a listing of advantages and disadvantages perhaps. Could, could I just comment quickly before you, you carry on, um, the, the person that suggested that we do away with the annual cap was thinking of people who, who don't have steady income, would, don't have steady income. So, one year I might have zero to invest, but next year I might have 60,000 rand to invest. So as long as over my lifetime I'm investing 500,000, then, that, you know, so that, that was the rationale there. The, the, the group that were arguing that the 30,000 is sufficient were the ones that did modeling and said, well, this 500,000 will never apply well. So, but you're right, it'll, it'll be helpful to them if we articulate that. Thank you very much, Rob. Keith Maxwell. There's just one anomaly between what we've said here and what some of our other representations were made. In our representation about that old age pensions should be given on a, um, automatically, you said that some of the savings could be made from the interest savings and pieces like that that could be done, done away with. And here they seem to be doing away with the interest savings. Mm -hmm. so I'm just Not doing away with it altogether. Yes, but it's in a different format about the thing. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Just, I'm just saying that the, they seem to be doing something different to the interest already. Yeah. Where in our rest of our um, presentation we're saying you can, do, you can use some of the, the interest saving to pay old age pensions on a, on a, on a non-discretionary basis. Um, do, do, you recall, do you recall which paper we said that? Both, I think both, paper, both the other two papers had a 10. Would you mind articulating that, and then I'll send it to the, the people that propose, you know, um, that um, collated the papers. And the the other one that I'm, I'm sorry, Keith, would you hold the mic sorry, closer? The other Thank one you. that I'm concerned about is that everything is now in the formal sector, and if people are using the savings like someone saves up for a house and then uses it, they can never almost catch up again. Their thirty thousand or something is gone for that, mm. and. And everything is in the formal sector as well. Is this going to help the informal sector to grow? Yeah, that's a good point. 
Now, I'm just thinking of the government policy. They're talking that, you know, we've got an informal sector, other sector that need capital and so on. And, and this is all basically going to the formal sector. Banks, sure as everyone else. You make an interesting point um, that possibly the target market preferred to invest through the informal and maybe our, our savings rates are not as bad as they would be if we included the informal stock files and so on. So, yeah. So, Keith, w would you mind emailing us those comments as well? They're very valuable. Mike? If I'm an irresponsible person and uh, I really just want to get a bit of tax relief, doesn't it worthwhile for me just to get my 30,000 and put it in and then two weeks later withdraw it? But you can never put it back in again. Doesn't matter. Uh, okay. I'm yeah, you could. You could, sure. So, it's, it's incentivizing people to play silly, silly games like that. Sure. Look, the, the tax relief, of course, comes through the, the growth. So if it's not there to earn much growth, I guess, in that case, it, it would work against that trick. But yes, uh, people will always be incentivized to find ways around it without question. I think a huge concern for me is that um, the differentiation between retirement and non-retirement savings, um, this is going to now start competing with... You know, the fundamental issue is, in South Africa, do I eat to survive, spend on education and housing, or do I save? Now it's, do I spend, save, save for retirement, or save for other things? I, I think there's a huge risk it's going to confuse people, and I, the ideal solution would probably be to um, align retirement and non-retirement savings, potentially um, by encouraging retirement savings and then allowing advanced access to that on a means-tested basis. I think that would probably be a better approach to take altogether and avoid... Um, the creation of unnecessary new vehicles, although you would need to still create some sort of way for people without retirement funds to be able to access the savings or access the benefits. You're not the first person to, to say that there shouldn't actually be a, be a distinction. Um, would you mind, again, because I think that's a valuable point, um, to see if they could somehow reconcile the whole picture? Clarence Boerter. Nikki, I'm a bit confused in terms of what the objectives is of, of all of this. Um, talking about a lifetime cap of 500k. Um, now, if you're in an interest-bearing vehicle and you're in your, your tax-free threshold, it's 22,800, that equates to about 350, 400k. So it's targeting exactly the same people, exactly the same vehicle except now that you allow for equities to be in the vehicle as well. So, What's the big deal? That, that was exactly my reaction when I first read you know, the so paper. So, so really yeah. if, if this to be, for this to be effective you have to up the 500,000 lifetime threshold. That will encourage people. But then you're talking a different type of investor than what they're targeting which is the, the low to the mid income um, market. Um, so I'm, I'm not quite sure where this is, this is being pitched as... What, what, what one mustn't forget is that they, they, ma they need to make sure that they're not reducing the income to the fiscus. So they're trying to give tax incentives to people that are not currently enjoying it. And so they need to take away from somebody. And so... But what I'm saying is, is exactly the people that they're going to try and provide the benefit to can get the same benefit already. They are arguing that it's not visible enough in the form that it is. And again, like you, I thought, well, what's the big deal? But apparently that is a big deal. 
that, or that, that's their point, that because it's not that visible, therefore people are not utilizing the tax incentives. Whereas if you go this route and you have these vehicles and everybody talks about the ISAs wherever they go, it, it's, it's public. It's true that we don't discuss, well, you know, I saved 10,000 Rand this month and I'm enjoying my tax rates. It's not something we talk about, but this apparently something that is public conversation. And, and through that. But, uh, but the essence, I agree, is, it's much of a muchness. Yeah, yeah. then I'm back to, to what you mentioned in terms of the, the marketing cost. Um, if you have deposit accounts, you don't have need a, a specific vehicle which will attract an administration fee. Um, you're adding collective investment schemes. I would argue that you would at least need direct equity uh, as, as one of the, the options uh, so that you can have an exchange-traded fund rather than a CIS because it's just the cost. That's valuable. So I'd be grateful if you could drop me a line around that and those points. Certainly one goes around in circles with this, with this particular paper and I think that's what makes it quite, quite difficult. What really is the crux? Will it work? What's really different? Are people losing out and um, will those that are intended to gain actually benefit from, from, from this approach? And really, those are the questions we must ask ourselves and, and, and give feedback on that. So what's your overall con feeling? Um, my overall feeling is for, for this to, to work, you, I don't think that they're targeting the, the, the right market for this. This is for probably to encourage higher income savers, and then you have to up the cap. Um, for, for the lower end of the market, it's, it's going to create a product which yeah, you'll probably see in the high streets or the scene in Capitec or in, in NetBank's windows, um, but will it be a true tax, or is there a true tax incentive here? My, my feeling is, is, is no, and it's, there's an additional cost. To attract more savings, um, it'll have to be from, from a different, or for this particular vehicle, it's, it's for a different income market, and a more sophisticated market than what they're targeting. Well, I, I think, What's your definition of the market do you think they might be targeting with this? Um, probably the people that's sitting in this room. Interesting. And that, de that defeats the whole objective. I think that's valuable feedback. And, and certainly um, that was the feeling at yesterday's discussion as well, is that it's not going to reach the, tar the target market. That, as I said, they do quote the statistics where from year to year, more and more, of the low to moderate income, at least by the UK's definition, people are, are, are having these, these vehicles. One of the, the difficult questions that came up yesterday was, yes, but is, are these new investments that are being created or, or is it just other investments that are being moved across? And that, that's the difficulty with statistics like that. One needs to just unpack them a lot more. So I think this is a difficult paper. And, and I had to ask myself, what, what would I do? You know, how would I do this better? And it is a difficult um, question. Any further thoughts? Keith Maxwell. One of the dangers of this is that if preservation and things like that become unpopular because of provident funds, the provident funds might be disbanded and people say instead, use this as a savings vehicle because many people at the moment particularly lower income, regard provident funds almost as a savings vehicle. So there is a danger that this could be provident funds won't be converted, but will be scrapped. 
and suddenly our ISAs will be the new provident funds. Interesting. Um, my experience of the UK, I mean, is, is non-existent, but what I do understand about it is most of the people in the UK don't actually own houses. I mean, that's a European phenomenon. You don't own your house. You rent it. So you can't save. You can't use your house bond as a savings vehicle. So you have to wonder how much that's influencing their investment choices in these collective investment schemes and how that will differ in South Africa where, I mean, on the current basis, owning a house is a, is a thing every South African is looking to do. So that's... That's a quite a, how can we translate that point into feedback? It's, it's interesting. I mean, we should be able to find some feedback from financial advisors in the UK on what, actually, what their financial advice is in relation to paying off bonds. And you may find the answer is, well, you know, that doesn't normally come up. Yeah. The point that came up yesterday was that South Africans are so indebted, particularly with housing loans, the very point that, that you raise, and it's in their best interest to actually direct their savings to pay the houses off rather than in these, these vehicles. And, and, and you make an interesting point again that the environment is different there, so what works there is working for different reasons. So that, that's very valuable. I'd, I'd really appreciate it if you could try and articulate the point as fully as you can, and I think we need to include that. It's a very important point. Thank you. I didn't get your name, sorry. Sorry, Janine. Janine, your surname? Shabach. Thank you. I'll watch out for your comment. I think it's a very good one. Thank you. Just on the, um, uh, related to the savings, um, if you, with the um, changes they want to make in the affordability for, for new short-term credit products, will that not automatically also encourage um, savings to a certain extent? And, and the and the relationship between, between the credit side and the savings side. Yeah, I think that is exactly the intention. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you, you ask how it could be done better. Uh, it's a very difficult question. I mean, imagine the vast majority of people in this country, they spend all the money they ever make. And then a whole lot more people spend a lot more money than that, as we know. That's the whole micro-lending boom. So to talk about a tax incentive, well, we know. So I think the only answer really, and this isn't an answer, but I think if this doesn't work, I certainly can't think what would, is a person can put money into a scheme like this, and the government, the state in some form or another, can put some other money in to join that money. And it could be done through all sorts of inventive ways that people like with, uh, you know, prizes and you know, all, all sorts of things can be done around that. Um, and obviously the money that the state put in would not be accessible. That would immediately defeat the objective. Uh, and in fact, I think some of the money that the individual put in would then also be not accessible. Otherwise, again, we can go back to the thing, you put it in one week and you take it out the next. Uh, but it's the only route I can see that you're going to have any, any luck in what's a, a pretty intractable problem. Um, sorry, I didn't get your name. John. John Hayward. What is interesting is that in the paper they mention the Fundisa arrangement. It's, also, it's exactly what you describe. And it failed for, for a rather unnecessary and sad reason. And that is that the, accredit, the, the, the folk that were required to sell, if you like, this Fundisa scheme um, were not in a position to pass the FARS exams and therefore were not able to promote the 
Fundisa's saving scheme, and that particular one is for education. And I think all the sophisticated folk, or certainly the ones that I know, the younger ones who've got young children, have their, their, their eyes have been opened to the Fundisa arrangement. They're all going knocking on their bank's doors to get the government co-contribution for that as well. So, um, and in this paper, they specifically say that it's not their brief to discuss the co-contributions. But in many, from many people, I've had exactly that same feedback, and I think we do need to give it to them, that for the specific target market, that is going to be an incentive as opposed to the, to the tax incentives, which is it's nebulous. If you, you don't know what you're gaining if you don't know what you've lost. But if you see... If you see this extra piece of money coming in from nowhere, it, it's, it's substantial. And from what so you say, the reasons why the other one failed are not necessarily insuperable. They're not insuperable, um, but apparently the banks have applied uh, to the FSB for a waiver and for exemptions, and the FSB has said no. So, you know, it's quite sad how... Uh, and, and if you look at the paper, and unfortunately I, I decided not to show all the statistics. I thought if you were interested in the research, you could read it. And it's, it's, I think it's Annexure B is, is worth a read. Very, very low take-up. Very low. Um, but the co-contribution is valuable. If you have a look at the co-contributions, um, they certainly made a material impact on, on what was ultimately taken out. So yes, sir, that's a good idea. So, And like I've said to everyone, please, would you... Email us with the comment. Thanks. Uh, you answer our. Just one thing. I absolutely agree with John. I mean, everyone earning less than the tax threshold of sixty thousand an annum or whatever it is, uh, are not will not be concerned about a tax benefit because they're not paying tax. So by by giving co-contributions, you can encourage people earning less than sixty thousand an annum to contribute because they get something and those are exactly the target market I would say and certainly the majority of the population. They, they specifically say and it, it's, some, it's something that one can read over quite quickly that they're targeting low, as I said low to moderate um, income taxable income households so they're actually targeting quite a narrow band and I'm wondering if the population statistics and the projections don't show that that's a, a burgeoning band. And, and to try and instill an approach of savings and a, a savings mentality could help. So I think that's the essence of it. I've been wrestling with it myself, and, it, and it's not obvious for, for the group that you mentioned, and it's just messing around for, with, the, for, with the rich folk. But and, and, and targeting what looks like a small group, but maybe that's a small gro growing group, might be. Yeah. yeah the comments uh, have, have been very, very valuable. Um, are there, please by show of hands, if there are any more comments. Um, well, that wraps it up then. Um, um, thank you very, very much for your attendance today and for your comments. Um, and I look forward to receiving both of us. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, it doesn't seem as if they're in a rush to, to go ahead with this particular, with, 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 with bedding this down. This, this sounds like the, 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 the non-retirement incentives is just an idea that they are, are putting out there for discussion. Um, in, in Neville's paper, I think that the due date is a lot sooner. So I think there is time for us to continually thinking and, and explore and through the various lobby groups that we've got to 
to find ways to actually contribute in a holistic fashion for saving pre- and, and post-retirement as well. Thank you.